Isles Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family on a morning that you ordained from eternity past to your glory, Father. What a privilege this is to fellowship together this way, to break bread, all in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. We pray for those that are in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning, Father, for a variety of reasons that you heal them and bring them back to us as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those in this world that are still lost, that don't know your Son intimately the way we do, that before it's too late, that you humble them by whatever means necessary so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning of rejoicing like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. Here's where we begin on Wednesday. It's been a theme from the pulpit for a while now, and I love it, up here on the board, just to get us situated. What would we ever do without God's promises? Just imagine a world, imagine an existence, knowing what you know right now, without God's promises. What would we ever do? Where would our hope be? Where would our joy be? Where would our sense of peace or security be? Where or what would we ever do without God's promises? Certainly a time of reflection this past week. But here's what the Spirit's been getting at. So if we all can agree on that, uh, or what the Spirit's getting at with that question, think of this. For a promise to bolster a person's mind, to build them up, it must be present first, right? In other words, without knowledge of said promise, how would you ever be built up? You wouldn't. Here's another question that the Spirit's been giving us this past week. What good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? We all agreed this past week and had a few giggles that um, we're really good at spending money. Matter of fact, I would argue that Americans are pretty expert at it. Just if practice means anything, we're just darn good at spending things here on earth. But we have promises about heaven, that we have resources available to us given the fact that we have eternal life as believers. And those are heavenly gifts. So what good, though, are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? Here's some guidance from Holy Scripture. Go to Proverbs 23, verse 23. We'll get some guidance here right out of the gate. Proverbs 23, 23. We know that riches exist, right? We know that heavenly riches exist. But what if you don't know how to spend them? Proverbs 23, verse 23. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. If nothing else, buy truth. Purchase truth. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about personal resources. Personal resources. There's only 24 hours in any day. We only have so much time to do what Proverbs 23, 23 says. To buy truth. To get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Go to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1. And we're so tied to economies that are tangible, 
economies that we live in, that we sort of breathe in, uh, in this world, that we let ourselves get dragged away from the promises of God. Here's one, Isaiah 55, 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Verse 1 says, You who have no money, come buy and eat without money and without cost. Verse 2, Delight yourself in abundance. Again, these are promises from God, are they not? What is the, the principle on the board? But what good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? Go to Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. The first question this morning was, what would we do without God's promises? The second question is, what good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? Matthew 13, 44. <clears throat> Jesus speaks a parable. Matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All Jesus is really doing is giving us a measure of comparison in other words um Everything we have pales in comparison to what we can purchase in this life on the heavenly scale. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All that he has. This parable reminds me of Paul's attitude about all that he had acquired prior to being converted. I'll give you the Amplified Classic, and I apologize about the small letters. Philippians 3.8 in the Amplified Classic reads, Yes, furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding Him more fully and clearly. For His sake, I have lost everything. Remember Paul with his resume. He had to give up everything. He had no problem doing it, but this is his attitude about it. For his sake I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish, refuse, dregs. That's the stuff you throw away. The Greek word is skubalon. Some of you also know that it's translated as dung. I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish, skubala or skubalon, in order that I may win or gain Christ, the anointed one. That was his attitude. It's the same attitude that Jesus was speaking of in this parable. Look at verse 44 again. It's the same attitude we noted in Proverbs and Isaiah. Matthew 30, 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
That's how much it is worth to the one who realizes it. Finally, one more passage that speaks to what we ought to be spending our resources on. Go to Revelation 3.18. Revelation 3, verse 18. What we ought to be spending our resources on. And where do we get those resources? And who's given us those resources? I could go right out, I could go out right now and say, to hell with all of you. I'm done. I'm just going to go set up camp on the side of the road here and start selling stuff because money's worth more to me than you are. And I could make unholy profit, could I not? And the world would gladly give it to me, would it not? And then I would, in that sickening moment, spend it on other worldly things, would I not? That's called an economy. We're going to talk about that this morning. Which economy do we function in? Well, this is Jesus now speaking to John, of course, telling him to write this in Revelation, saying, I want you to do this. Look at Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So that you may see. Jesus is saying, I want you to function in my economy, not the world's. And just as a side note, since we're going to talk about economies this morning, um, and the great analog that everyone here understands quite readily, especially as an American, is money. That's the economy that we deal with every day. And that's the economy that the Bible speaks very clearly about loving and partaking in and all that good stuff. So just as a side note before we continue, think about money. Money is just a paper form of a resource, a substitute. I hope you understand what money actually is. Paper's not worth anything, is it not? And the ink that's on it isn't really worth that much. So that's a representation of a resource. What's important is that you understand that very thing. Money is an abstract representation of your personal resources or even how you've spent them. Money is an abstract representation of your personal resources. Money exists solely for the purpose of exchanging, unlike resources. If the only food in this world was apples, we would all grow apples on an apple tree in the yard, and we would never need money. You get the point? The only reason money exists is because, unlike resources exist, and we need some kind of an exchange, some kind of an currency, and develop some kind of an economy. So money exists solely for the purpose of exchanging unlike resources or resources with different, not to get all economical with you, but resources with different per unit values. Therefore, an economy is nothing more than two or more people exchanging personal resources. Do you understand? When you exchange money, that represents some spending that you've done of yourself to earn said money. Make sense? So when you exchange money, you're exchanging personal resources. So here's the big question, and this is the one that gets right to the point. What's the most valuable thing you have? What's the most precious commodity that you have? You. Your soul. Here's some scripture up here on the board. Matthew 16:26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, in which economy will you exchange resources, those precious moments in time for your soul? God's or Satan's? 
Which economy will we focus on? Which one will we exchange in? Which one will we merchandise in? Which one will we sell our precious personal resources in? And that's really what verse 26 on the board says. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is all the Spirit's imparting to our souls right now. He's essentially reminding us that there are two economies we can function in. Two. One is truth, the other is a lie. One leads to life, the other death. One leads to freedom, the other to bondage. Again, the passage, this passage speaks to what we ought to be spending our resources on. And when I talk about our resources, I want you to turn your attention to yourself. There's only 24 hours in each day. The most precious resource you have is you. It's the very best you can give. It's you. And what does Jesus say in verse 18 of Revelation 3? He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. How does that work? It means you have to dedicate yourself to him. The great resource is time and energy and soulish things. Didn't we just read earlier on in uh, Isaiah that it's not going to cost any money to buy? Right? Well, what does it cost you? Your soul. It costs you, your time, your energy, your affections, your adoration, your gratitude, and most of all, your love. Be free from the love of what? Money. Because that's the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, to net it out, get out of that economy and get into mine. If the, very, if the most precious thing you have to give is yourself, where, do we, where are you giving it? Where are you expending yourself? What are you actually buying with your time? Are you spending all your time working harder to make more money so that you can spend it on that economy? and play in that economy? Or are you spending your time the way Jesus said, buy from me gold refined by fire? That's tantamount to saying this right here. I want you to spend your time and your energy right here. This should be a priority. This should be your priority. In the context of Revelation 3, John was instructed to write to a church that had been personified. But the principle applies to all of us, of course. Jesus Christ, our Lord, desires that we partake in His economy, not Satan's. His economy. The daily temptation for all of us, especially given the multitude of distractions in America, is to exchange what is most valuable to us, our soul, for some time in the world system. That's the great temptation. To exchange the truth for a lie. Sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? To worship the creature instead of the creator. That's the great temptation. But here's what I have to say this morning up here on the board. Your life has value. Your life has value. God has given each of us a gift called life. It is our precious opportunity to bring glory to God on earth. How shall we use it? How shall we, quote, spend our God-given resources? In which economy are we merchandising in? Romans 12, 1-2, 6, 11 to 13. Go to Romans 12, verse 1. Your life, my friends, has value. This is very good news. 
This shouldn't be condemning at all. This is just a wonderful reminder from God the Holy Spirit that your life has value. That God left you here after salvation for a reason. To buy from Him. To learn how to spend His resources to His glory. Remember, you've been purchased with a price. Amen? There you go. It's not even your life. It's His. You've been purchased. You are a slave. Romans 12.1 Well, what does our Master say? through the writing of his apostle Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, don't forget that, that little phrase right there is very important. It's by the mercy of God you're even alive, that you're even able to bring glory to God, considering your previous condition, right? (laughs) That's good perspective. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you get a transformed, renewed mind? You buy from Him. You, you, you buy and you receive currency and you spend it in his economy. How about Romans 6.11? Go there, Romans 6, verse 11. I think that's what the Spirit's been saying, is we have to step back and be honest with ourselves. That's why that word confess has been coming up a lot from the pulpit. Romans 6.11, none of us have arrived, Right? None of us have arrived, so we don't walk away from these messages all condemned with our head hung low. We examine ourselves. Romans 6, 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Again, the point on the board, your life has value. God has given each of us a gift called life. It is our precious opportunity to bring glory to God on earth. And these questions follow. How shall we use it? How shall we use it? How shall we spend our God-given resources? In which economy are we merchandising in? There's only two. In which economy are we merchandising in? If your life has so much intrinsic value, and it does, what is the greatest thing you can do with it after salvation? What's the practical thing? If Jesus Christ said, buy from me, you ready? This is going to be a whopper. You ready? Drum roll. Ta-da! Have you seen that yet? How many, what have we seen that? About a hundred times in the last couple months? Read your Bible. That's how, you, that's how you buy from Him. Does it cost you a penny? Nope. What does it cost you? Time and energy. But when you do that, By grace, you receive currency in his economy. Sure, you lose out. Whatever time you spend reading your Bible, you can't be on the street or out in the world making money, right? You're reading your Bible. That's the choice. Read your Bible. Here's a quick review of the passages we noted on Wednesday up here on the board. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119.28, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. And Psalm 119.111, I have inherited your testimonies, your word, forever, for they are the joy of my heart. can't tell you how many times I've read, and I don't, need to read it anymore in my life or heard people say 
uh, very wealthy, successful people say at the end of their life, I would give up a billion dollars just to make things right with my family. I would give up everything I own for another few days with my beloved wife. I would give up everything for joy. Hello? That's a person who at the end of it all, who merchandise obviously very successfully in Satan's economy, turns out they figure out at the very end of their life they would have rather had God's economy. And their life now, looking back, is basically scubala. It is essentially regret. I don't want that for you. God certainly doesn't want that for any of you. Today's today, right? Yesterday's gone. You can't change it. So don't walk out of here condemned. That's not what this message is about. This is supposed to encourage you, to let you know that you can sever yourself from all of that and have joy, a surpassing joy. That's a promise from God. And as we started off, what would we do without God's promises? <laughs> and what good are all those promises if we don't know how to spend them? Here's where we came upon a passage that really gives us meaningful perspective on why we ought to exchange our resources for truth. Go to Isaiah 55, verse 10. Isaiah 55, verse 10. I absolutely adore this passage. Isaiah 55, verse 10. Why we ought to exchange our resources for truth, why we should spend our time and our energy on glorifying God, on remaining in His economy. Isaiah 55:10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Etch that into your soul. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. So you want a little purpose? You want some encouragement as to why the Spirit's been saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, up here on the board. Why read your Bible? Up here on the board. The Word of God never returns empty-handed. We just read that. It is perfect in its quest to set you free. It is, therefore, the greatest possible investment. Talk about economies. It is, therefore, the greatest possible investment we can ever make with whatever precious resources God has given us. For example, our soul, our time, our gratitude, all of it. Never returns empty-handed. It's the greatest possible investment we can ever make with whatever precious resources God has given us. When written out this way, you almost get the practical description of holy worship. And doesn't that sound a lot like what we read previously in Romans 12.1? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship? Doesn't it sound just like that? Yeah. Here's an analogy for you. When we worship something, rightfully or wrongfully, do we not spend our resources on it? Is that fair to say? I mean, some of you worship actors and actresses. What do you do? Spend $200 a month on cable, or you go down to Regal Cinema and spend $15 on popcorn and $10 on a ticket. <laughs> right? You spend, and your time, by the way, is spent there like this. 
We spend our resources on the things we worship. Fair enough? Idolize worship. You choose your poison. And if resources are very often represented by currency, for example, money, we can look at where we spend our money, for starters. And I say, I'm going to read this without any condemnation, please. This is not this morning's message. He's just opening our eyes, right? He's just trying to encourage us to keep on that vector. If our resources are very op often represented, they are, by our currency, and most of us can relate to the idea of money, we can look at where we spend our money, for starters. Here's a few examples. Both men and women spend their money on sex. Whether prostitutes, the internet, hookup apps, or even dating, American style. How about last week's blog? How many people send Tom Brady a percentage of sales when they buy his shirt? or a bobblehead doll of him, or whatever. How about where we live? Do we really need all that space? Or is it just a big idol sitting in the middle of some green grass? A statement to the world that says, yes, I've worked hard for this idol. We even, this is crazy, but it's true. We even worship food. In America, DJ, uh-huh, <laughs> right? Do we really need to spend $50 or $100? Or recently I learned you can spend $1,000 on a meal. Do we really need to do that? How about smartphones and televisions? Oh, here we go again. Will you leave the television alone? It's football season. Exactly. How about smartphones and TVs? Do we really need access to Hollywood or idols? Those are just questions. I'm not here to condemn you. Those are just questions on, that really um, bring out the truth. Where do we spend our resources? Fair enough. That's just a small list of where people spend their time and their money, and you say, well, I don't spend my, my time on that. Well, you, you did because it took you time to make the money so that you could spend it on that. It's just representational, you see? So don't play games either. So the basic principle is that when we worship something, we spend money on it. That's fair. So we have to, in good conscience, minimally, minimally examine why why we spend our resources the way we do. Why? Why? And then we must investigate how we go about merchandising in the world system the way we do. Well, in order to feed this form of worship, we must first exchange our precious, limited, God-given resources for currency. In order to feed this form of worship, the one that requires us to spend on it, you see? We have to exchange our precious, limited, God-given resources for some form of currency. Go to 1 Timothy 6.10, where Paul writes about the most famous one, of course, 1 Timothy 6.10. Again, I really don't want this to be a message where you're walking out of here with your head hung low. It's just impetus for self-examination. That's all this really is. To understand that there's really just two economies. And you get the choice, even as a believer, to choose which one you're going to spend your precious resources in at any moment in time. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And I already know some of you are going to say, I don't love money. I might make good money. I work hard, but I don't love it. Okay, I have a, I have a principle coming up just in a moment. So 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In other words, the strength of that love, of that thing, ultimately can take a person that far to the point where they're away. Up here on the board, though, here's the checkpoint. Ready? Because I know some of you have already done this in your soul. That, that doesn't account for me. doesn't matter for me. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're an American. Chances are it means something to you. Do not say you have no love for money from an emotionally offended state of examination. Look at your life. Don't just say emotionally, I don't love money. I don't. Maybe in that moment, because the Spirit's convicting you, you don't. Maybe you say, I hate money. But you hate it because of what it's done to you. Because when you look at your life, you say, crap, I actually love it. I look around, and I'm worshiping all this stuff. I get all this stuff in my life that I spend all my precious resources on. And so you say, it's just money. Yeah, it's just money that you spent your time and energy getting. I just spent, I'm spending all my precious resources on these things that have nothing to do with bringing glory to God whatsoever. Nothing. They just bring glory to you. Or your idol, and you know how the blog wrote it, right? By association, you get glory by your idol, you know. So don't play this game. We all do it. Do not say you have no love for money. Look at your life. Your life is your proof. Confess the truth about it before God. What have you spent your money on and why? Which economy esteems your expenditures more, God's or Satan's? Which economy esteems your expenditures more? Which one? Which one says, wow, love the new shiny object? Is it Satan's economy? Is it your ungodly neighbor or is it your godly neighbor? Which one, which one do you want approval from? You follow? So just look at your own life. Don't just say emotionally, I don't love money. And you can't make me say it. I'm not here to make you say anything. It's none of my business. This is between you and the Lord. I do this to, so that you can be set free. What the Spirit's saying is, you know, look in the mirror. Look at your life. What, what do you spend your time and energy and therefore your money on? Go to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24. Because these are principles, these are not principles that Ed Collins came up with, certainly not. Matthew 6.24. Here's what the Bible has to say. No one can serve two masters. You see, in the economy, there's in, how many economies are there? Two. Each economy has a master. One's Jesus and one's Satan. Okay? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't, be, you can't serve both of those economies. I didn't say that. Do you understand? This is the word of God. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Hmm. I think Jesus was, was reasonably intelligent, right? Had a little wisdom, right? <laughs> he says point blank, you can't serve both of those economies. You just can't. So you have to choose. Go to Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. And this is where the rubber hits the road, because when you, when you look at your life and you say, well, I know of the promises of God, but I'm, I'm, I must not have them yet. Lombano, remember Lombano means to possess them wholly? I just don't possess them yet. Okay, at least you're humble. That's the place you want to be. At least you're humble. You say, I'm not there yet. But I'll at least confess what is true about myself. I'll confess before God where my affections are. I'll confess 
that my life looks a hell of a lot like Satan wants it to look like more than God. I'll confess that. And then you might say, geez, that wasn't so bad. <sighs> now I have something to work with because I'm no longer arrogant and saying, I, I don't love money. I don't love money. I gave 38 cents to the church today. That's 38 cents of love. Why, why is nobody laughing? I'm sorry. That might be insulting to some of you. 25 cents. Okay, that's lower. Oh. Laugh. It's okay, guys. Listen, we all fail, right? I already know everything. I already know that everything I need to know about you all. God knows more than I could ever know. Uh, this is not condemning. This is freedom. This is so we can shake it off, right? Shake off the vestiges of sin. Shake off our love and our worship of things that are ungodly, starting with ourselves and our idols. That's all. That's all this is. Hebrews thirteen five. And what does it say? The writer says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Just make sure. That's all. Can you do that? Can you look in the mirror and make sure that you don't love your money? That you don't have a bunch of shiny objects and a bunch of things that bring glory to no one else but you? Can you at least admit it? That's the way to start. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never, never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That is the solution. Do you understand? That's the remedy. For you to let go of your affection for something that represents an economy that you've been functioning in. For you to let go of that affection for something unholy, you have to buy this from him. This is what he meant when he said, buy from me. Gold refined by fire. He's talking about the Word of God. Buy from me the Word of God, because the Word of God have promises in them. And what does it say? I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The net-net of what the Spirit's saying is that you either have a greater attachment to money, or you have a greater attachment to His promise. Some of you have and find all your security in your money. And he's saying, that's no good. You've forsaken my promise. And when you, when you buy that lie, you have to function. You have to serve that master. You have to function in that economy. When you purchase his promise, you function in his economy. Which, where the currency is no longer creature credit like it is over here. It's now grace. Again, the point on the board. Do not say you have no love for money from an emotionally offended state of examination. Look at your life. Your life is your proof. Confess the truth about it before God. What have you spent your money on and why? Which economy esteems your expenditures more? God's or Satan's. As the Spirit's been saying for a couple of weeks now, just be honest. That's what this is about. Just be honest. Confess what is true because your freedom depends on it. Okay, back to the instigating perspective up here on the board. Again, why read your Bible? Here's why. This is the most beautiful thing. Cling to this. With everything you've got, the Word of God never returns empty-handed. You might say, I have faith in that. But as I've taught years ago, faith has to be consummated. It has to be put to the test for it to actually be faith. Faith has to be tested. Remember that? Remember those lessons? This might be eight years ago. Faith has to be tested for it to become real, usable faith. So it's not enough for you to just say, I have faith, and then go back to an ungodly economy. Look at your life. You don't have faith. You haven't even tested this yet, for some of you. You have never put this to the test. You've never taken the, and I use the word loosely, risk of giving up on this economy. You've always held on to it, somehow, some way. It's always had tendrils into your life. 
And to whatever degree that's true about you, to that degree you remain in bondage. To that degree you prove what the Spirit's trying to say to you, that you still haven't believed in His promises yet. And because you haven't believed in His promises yet, you don't get to spend them yet on your life and then reap the benefits of joy and peace and contentment and confidence in the Lord. Does that make sense? That's why we read our Bible. Because it never returns empty-handed. But that is something you have to put to the test. You can't just say, I believe it. I'm going to go back to my life now. I believe it. I believe that I don't need Hollywood to entertain me so that I can be happy. Really? Put it to the test. Bless you. Put it to the test. Seriously, whatever that means. I happen to mention TV a lot. (laughs) Put it to the test then. You don't need all your idols and your entertainment and your Hollywood and the commercials and the soap commercials with half-naked ladies and the Doritos commercials where people are doing cartwheels and jumpsuits and everything else. You didn't buy that. You didn't pay an extra, I don't know, 30 bucks a month for ESPN Prime. That's even a thing. You didn't buy that knowing that that's what you'd get? Of course you did. Oh, I only, I, okay, it's like the guy who says, I only read the articles in Playboy. I, I only bought it for the football. I've been, a, I've been a dude for 50 years. You're lying. You're lying. I don't mean L-I-O-N. It's good that you're laughing because this really is comical when you really think about it. We have the promises of God with every promise of peace and life eternal and happiness and contentment. We have it in our, the palm of our hands. It's not going to cost you a dime. I just want your heart and your soul and your might. And we go to Tom Brady and some, some awful Doritos commercial. Or some Vietnamese fingernail polisher. I got you, ladies. Yeah, see, you ladies are like, oh, those men, they're such pigs. You know. Yeah, you just spent $100 on your nails. <laughs> just saying. What, you're not beautiful enough without your nails being all polished up? Seriously, you're not beautiful enough without a $300 haircut? I think you are. God obviously didn't, never makes a mistake. He says you're wonderfully made. What's the problem? You don't trust him. You trust in creature credit more. You want more creature credit, you see? Because creature credit buys you more in that economy. Is that fair to say? There you go. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science. We just have to be honest. The word of God never returns empty-handed. It is perfect in its quest to set you free. It is, therefore, the greatest possible investment we can ever make with whatever precious resources God has given. I think this is exceptionally encouraging. Is that fair? Maybe a little, some of you are like, maybe a little, you know, abrasive a little bit, but it nonetheless is extremely encouraging because it's just reminding us of the basic truth that God's promises really do exist and we have been invited to buy at no cost other than ourselves our spiritual form of worship at no cost we can buy as much of it as we want okay so just to you know push this home imagine you have two credit cards One from American Express, the other from God. Okay? Both have unlimited spending limits. Oof! You know that one actually exists? It's called the black card. The American Express Centurion. It's called the black card. No limit. Or God's credit card. I call it the Heaven Express. It's the green card. Oh, no, the grace card, my bad. 
I call it the grace card. So you have two credit cards, both in your pockets, all the time. So visualize both of these cards being in your pocket, available to you 24 by 7. Each time you swipe the black card, you are essentially signing up for more hours of labor to pay for it. Each time you swipe the grace card, you say to yourself, my dad's paying this bill for me. If you refuse to pay the balance in a timely manner on the black card, they pull it from you and pursue to hunt you down. <laughs> With the grace card, your bill is automatically paid in full every month. One card costs you resources, costs you resources, the other costs God. The first is bondage, the second is freedom. The first is Satan's economy where the currency is creature credit. The second is God's economy where the currency is grace. In God's economy, God's justice is always satisfied. He never proceeds to sue you for unpaid bills. Christ is our benefactor. This is tantamount to saying this up here on the board. Now you might say, well, just read it. Hopefully this makes sense. The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. In other words, you will, you will never go bankrupt ever again in God's economy. You will never go bankrupt. You were born bankrupt, but once you are saved, you have all the riches and the access to heaven. You will never go bankrupt again. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Amen? That, to me, is very encouraging. To have that as an option, a standing option, is very encouraging. And what it means in a practical sense is Christ will never abandon his sheep. I will pay all of your bills. Every grace, every swipe you take with that grace card, I will pay. Every single time. Keep on swiping as fast as you can. Somebody be like, mm. like, remember the old video games on that? Techno Bowl or something? Nobody? <laughs> like, What's wrong with him? It's the way it was back in Atari days. Swipe away. As much as you like. Buy without any real cost to you other than you. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never ever deserting them. So please be encouraged. As children of God, we have unlimited access to all resources God has promised us. And just to reiterate something, a beautiful statement that came from the Spirit this past week or so. How do we know? How do we know that He's not going to stop paying our bill? Love, up here on the board. Because love never fails, up here on the board. We read this in Joshua 1 5, 1 Chronicles 28 20, among some others. He will not fail you. If He says He's going to pay every bill by grace, He does. Why? God is love, and love never fails. He makes a promise, you can depend on it. Why? Because He loves you. And it's that same sphere that the Spirit's been bringing up now for years, ever since the Gospel reload. It's that same sphere of love that we're able to abide in. When we start understanding what love really is, that it really is the underpinnings of all the grace. Remember, grace is just an expression of love. It's the underpinning of grace itself. Why does God do all the things He does? Why is He so faithful to us outside of being perfect integrity? But what's the motivation behind it all? Why could it never fail? Because perfect love never fails. Ever. It's never failed once. Ever. Past, present, or future. Perfect love never fails. That's how you know we don't have perfect love because we fail each other all the time. Amen? All right. Chris is like, I'll give you that. <laughs> hey, she's in the back. She can't see. <laughs> He's like, 
Love never fails. It is God's love that ultimately binds our confidence to Christ. It is the same love that becomes us when we share in it experientially, when we learn the word. That's all he's been trying to do. Sever you from that thinking and move you into the sphere of love. That's all he's been trying to do. I mean, it's, what is it, part 37 now of just this one? We had 75 on the deceitfulness of sin. They're all the same effort, you see. It's very, very simple. Go to Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. What about love? What does love do? practically speaking, when it's pure. Colossians 3.14 Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I'll give you the American, or excuse me, the English standard version up here on the board as well. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. To unify, to harmonize. Let the peace, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. What about all that? Look at this, right on the coattails of that. How do you let love rule this way in your heart? How do you have the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The only way that can happen is if you read your Bible, if you take in the Word of God. That's the only way. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. You don't find it on a peach tree. You don't find it in a grocery store. You don't find it in a swap meet. You don't find it in uh, Hollywood. You find the exact opposite. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Some of you already know this, but the book of Psalms is essentially a book of hymns, songs, and praise. The whole book. That's why it's poetic. You, you never notice how it's structured? You can sing the psalms. They're actually described that way. That's what they were meant to be. Some of you already know that. So the book of Psalms is essentially a book of hymns, songs, and praise. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation, the Greek word for psalm actually carries with it the plucking or twanging of strings. That's what psalm actually means, plucking or twanging of strings. In other words, when you read the psalms, Make the connection to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, with what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You, can, you could easily, even you, yes you, could read a, the psalm, a psalm and sing it. Wouldn't be the first time what they were designed to be. Let me ask you this. When you feel the love of God, don't you want to sing praises? Is not your confidence at an all-time high? Are you not wonderfully hopeful about your future? Yeah. When you feel the love of God, don't, aren't those things true? Go to Psalm 31.24. Psalm 31, 24. Remember, our, our series title is The Lord is Our Confidence. Think about what happens to your confidence when you understand what the Spirit's been teaching this morning. Psalm 31, 24. 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. Does that not sound like confidence? Sure it does. Confidence in his economy. See, because if you're broke, if you're broke in Satan's economy, how much confidence do you have? Not much. Matter of fact, you might be ridiculed for it. You might be looked down upon for it. But that doesn't matter at all in God's economy. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Hope in His riches, not the world's. Who have a love for His currency, not a love for money. How about Psalm 71.5? Are these things you sing? Do you sing 31.24? How about 71.5? Could you sing this with all earnestness and honesty and love for God? Or would it feel funny? Would it feel phony? Psalm 71.5, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. How about 130, verse 5? Psalm 130, verse 5. Could you sing this stuff? Or would you be a hypocrite? Could you sing it in all honesty? Or would you just sing it in church? Psalm 130, verse 5. Because this is what Colossians 3 said. We should be singing. We should be praising with psalms and, and spiritual song and hymns. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In His word I do, or do I hope. It's a wonderful scene to picture in our heads, isn't it? The grace of God shining down on us, pouring over us with promises of salvation and deliverance from every possible misery. And if not in this life, then certainly in the next. And some of you might be saying, this sounds great, but the black card actually exists. So you can actually swipe it. (laughs) My response is, so does the grace card. And here's how you swipe it. You ready? Drum roll. Oh, there it is. Read your Bible. Swipe, 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 swipe. What does it cost you to read your Bible? What did it cost you to come here? We don't pass a bat. We don't pass a basket around here. If you want to donate, you can donate in the back in the box there. What did it cost you to come here? Nothing. Nothing. Oh my gas! All right, I'll give you a buck. Okay, you. <laughs> what did it really cost you? You. The precious resource. You. You'll never get a minute ago back, or five minutes ago, ever. You'll never get up until right now back, ever. You've spent it already. The greatest resource you have is you. Your life is worth something. Spend it buying from him. Gold refined by fire. That's what he's talking about. I'm just here to encourage you. I'm a spiritual gift given to you by grace. Another form of grace because God loves you. To do this work for you. To remind you. To do that thing. Here's the thing, and I've got to close here in a moment. Something absolutely incredible happens when we read our Bibles. We have the ability to confess. Remember, confess just means say the same thing, good, bad, or ugly. Take that negative connotation out of your vocabulary. Confess just means to say the same thing as God. Sometimes you say a good thing. Sometimes it's a sin. Either way, saying the same thing. When we read our Bibles, we have the ability to confess our lives before the holy God of the universe. Up here on the board, this is from this past week. Again, why read our Bible? How do we confess our lives before the holy God of the universe if we have no idea of his standards? I mean, how do I say the same thing if I don't know what he's saying? (laughs) 
We must read our Bible in order to gain knowledge of divine standards of living. And here's where we ended on Wednesday, and I think we're pretty much going to end about the same spot. Stated differently, how do we say the same thing as God if we don't take in His Word? Here's what the Word of God says up here on the board. In the Amplified Classic, Romans 10.17 reads, So faith comes by hearing what is told, and what is heard comes by the preaching of the message that came from the lips of Christ, the Messiah Himself. Daily confession is paramount to holy living. Daily confession is paramount to holy living. There is no way to live according to God's will if we never stop and consider exactly how we are living. I'll close with this. Are we living for the flesh with moments of living for God? Or are we living for God with moments of living for the flesh? That's been the theme for the last couple of weeks. Which one? Remember it says, make sure, what did Hebrews say? Make sure your character is free of the love of money. That's essentially saying, to generalize it, make sure that you are not invested in an unholy economy. Because there's only two. Make sure that you are not invested in that thing, and then every so often you pop out and come to church. And then you go right back. And you pop out and you might read a, a chapter in the Bible. And you go right back. Make sure your character is not in that economy. Do you follow? So again, are we living for the flesh with moments of living for God? Or are we living for God with moments of failure, of living for the flesh? These are distinctly different attitudes that describe two completely opposing, mutually exclusive economies. Amen? All right, let's buy it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you so much for always giving us the truth, the unadulterated truth, even though it scrapes our, uh, our fleshes a little bit. Father, we know that in the end, it's our confidence that you're trying to build up in us towards your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. We know that you do so by grace, motivated by love, a perfect love that has never failed. Father, let us take, us, take these truths back to our homes, in the quiet of our own soul, and then out to a world that just is decaying and just wants nothing to do with our Lord and Savior. Father, we just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.